Father, as we come to your word, we do ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds. As the writer of Hebrews would say, today if you hear his voice, the voice of the Spirit through the word of God, do not harden your hearts. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts would be opened. I pray that our hearts are listening. I pray that we would sit and listen to your word and be transformed. That we all, as we continue to fix our eyes upon you, may be transformed back into your image, one degree of glory to another. Might your spirit and your word transform us this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, First Baptists. What an honor and a privilege it is to be with you. It's been a sweet time of worship with you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but if you sit towards the front, you have the joy of hearing the choir behind you singing, and it brings great joy to my heart just to worship the King, but to worship with you as well. My name is Jonathan Nason. I serve as the pastor of New Hope Church in Jamaica, Queens. I'm a friend of Pastor Harry and of this church, and I'm grateful to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me at this time to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. While you're doing that, by way of introduction, uh, I was in class uh, with a professor, and we were just talking about biblical interpretation and culture and how different cultures bring their ideas and they interpret texts differently and they interpret culture differently. And even as we faithfully try to uh, get rid of some of that subjectivity the best we can, even though we can't do it perfectly, and we faithfully uh, interpret the text, we then got to recognize that we live in different cultures and we must apply the biblical text to a culture. He said, but the problem with applying the biblical text or applying anything to our culture oftentimes is what he calls and said the paradox of proximity. The paradox of proximity. He went on to share a proverb that just kind of, that really helped me understand what he meant by this point. And the paradox of proximity, the proverb goes like this. If you could ask a fish about water, what do you think the fish would say? the fish would likely respond with the question, what is water? You see, when we think about a fish and water, the two go hand in hand together. A fish lives in water, a fish dwells in water, a fish finds its entire being in water. But because it is so immersed within the water, it doesn't even recognize that it exists until it finds itself outside of water. Then all of a sudden, the fish is well aware of water itself. The paradox of proximity is simply this. The closer you are to something, oftentimes the harder it is to see it. The closer you are to something, oftentimes is the harder for you to see it. A paradox is a truth that sounds contradictory, but is actually true. You would think the closer you are to something, the easier it is to see it. For example, we take Um, uh, an airplane in the sky. So when an airplane's out in the sky, it looks so far away or anything, a bird, whatever. But as it gets closer, the easier it is to see something. Oftentimes, distance makes it harder. So we would think the closer it is, the easier it is to see it. But a paradox makes it sound like this isn't true. 
but oftentimes we find that this is true indeed. And I believe that we're going to see this play out in our text this morning. Would you read with me Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6? He, being Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and, Mary, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. I want to recognize the setting. Jesus is preaching or teaching in a synagogue in his hometown on a Sabbath. So imagine, let's contextualize the story a little bit. Jesus, on a Sunday morning, is preaching at the church he grew up at. Can we just use that illustratively? He's preaching at the church that he grew up at, which means that he is well familiar with everybody that is out there. And they are well familiar with him. They know everything about him. They know his family. They recognize, the text even mentions his family. And he's out there teaching and they're amazed at some of the things he's saying. And they respond simply as this. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Jodas and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Here's what they're saying. They were so familiar with Jesus. Think about the paradox of proximity. The closer you are to something, the harder it is to see it. We see an audience that was so familiar with the teacher, the person of Jesus right there in that moment, teaching them that they responded with unbelief. Two truths this morning that I want to simply unpack from this text as we go through it. The first is this. Familiarity should produce intimate relational worship, but it often produces contempt. Let me say that again. Familiarity with something, or specifically familiarity with Jesus, should have produced intimate relational worship on behalf of those in Nazareth. But instead, it produced a contempt towards Jesus. See, they were so close to Jesus that instead of recognizing for who, him for who he was, that familiarity of Jesus led them to unbelief and contempt towards Jesus. Uh, let me begin to unpack this a little bit more. What was Jesus' life like before his ministry at the age of 30? We know a lot about the last three years of his life. The four gospels outline those things for us, especially all of the gospels leading up to the, the climax of Christ's redemption of his death, burial, and resurrection. That is the focal point of the Gospels, meaning the Gospel writers are focusing on Jesus' teaching and ministry and what he came to do to seek and save the lost. 
And it brings that to the climax in the Gospels when he lays down his life for us. But because that is the focus of the writing, we don't actually have a lot about Jesus' life before the age of 30. The Gospels give us his birth narrative, which is vital to the story of redemption. It's vital to the truths of the Old and New Testament. It's vital to who Jesus was to be fully God and fully man. So they include his birth stories. We have one story of when Jesus was 12 years old. But besides the birth stories, besides when he was 12 years old and up till 30, we don't know a lot about him. We can speculate though based off some information that is given. For example, from this story, we know that Jesus was a carpenter. We also know that his father Joseph was a carpenter. Therefore, we can speculate that Jesus carried on the family business as a carpenter from the time Jesus was a young teenager until he began his ministry at the age of 30. Also from this story, we know that Jesus' parents had other children, at least six. Four sons are mentioned, and the plural for daughters is mentioned in the text, which means there was at least two, but possibly more. So he had at least six siblings. We can also speculate that Joseph, Jesus' father, earthly father, probably died before Jesus started his ministry because he's not mentioned in any of Jesus' ministry in any of the stories. He's only mentioned in Jesus' life as a child. He's not present in any of the stories during Jesus' ministry. Therefore, it's likely that Jesus experienced the loss of a parent and I'm sure experienced the loss of other family members as well. If this is true then, Jesus, being the eldest son within the family, became the head of the household and responsible for taking care of his family. He probably went to work full-time as a carpenter to provide for his family up till the age of 30. Although you and I can only speculate about Jesus' life before the age of 30, the people listening to him this particular day in Nazareth when he's teaching knew the answer to all the questions that you and I can only guess at or speculate about. They knew everything about him. As a kid, he grew up in the synagogue every weekend going for worship. To illustrate it, once again, he was, he was in child, children's ministry and kids' ministry. And I don't know about you, but I, being a parent of three and just being around humans, kids reveal their sinful nature, right? Scripture tells us that we are conceived with that sinful nature. Psalms tells us that. We understand Romans chapter 5 that because Adam sinned, sin spread to all men and death spread to all men. So we, you and I are born with a sinful nature. This is why Jesus had to be virgin born because he didn't inherit the seed of Adam. So that's why it's important for him to be virgin born. But I don't know about you, but I can spot out sinful nature within children. Imagine having a child in Sunday school who did not have that sinful nature. You would think we would recognize it. You would think the people he grew up with would have recognized it as well. But they, Jesus, grew up in that synagogue, in this town. He went to school with the people in the story. He knew them by name and they knew him by name. He played on the playground with them and did other things with them. As a carpenter in the town, he probably made many things for the people in the story. Maybe he helped them frame a house or built tables and chairs, or maybe bowls and other utensils. Maybe he helped build a fence for their livestock. They saw how he treated and loved his neighbors. They saw how he did business with integrity and worked hard in all he did. They saw how he mourned the death of his father, likely. 
and now how he provided for his mothers and siblings after that moment. You and I can only speculate, but you must recognize that the people in this story knew all of these things about Jesus. They knew everything about him, but yet they could not see that he was the Messiah. John 7 even tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him as the Messiah until after the resurrection. Once again, I have two sons. They are six and seven years old. If one of them didn't have a sinful nature and was the Messiah, I feel like as parents and as the other child would recognize it. He never punches back, right? He, he, he always does things differently, but yet his brother's growing up with him, having an older brother who cared for him and looked out for them, yet they did not believe even that Jesus was the Messiah until after his resurrection. Yet what is the response of the people in the town? Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? hands? Is not this the carpenter? Isn't he just the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? What they're saying is we know who he is and we take offense that he would stand in the place to be different than us. And they took offense at him and did not believe. You see, familiarity, you would think that the people in the town would have recognized a child growing up without a sinful nature. They would have recognized how God in person would have loved and cared for others. They recognized how he did work hard and with excellence and with integrity. They would have felt like this would have stood out enough that they of anybody in the world would have recognized that this was the Messiah. Familiarity should have produced a response of worship in this moment. But instead, it produced contempt in their hearts. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they mocked him. Instead of having faith and repenting of their sins, they lived in unbelief. What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They are hearing and seeing the wisdom and the power of God right before their very eyes, but they just don't get it. You see, the paradox of proximity is on display in their statement of unbelief. I want to be honest and loving for a second. For many of us, we have grown up, thankfully, we have grown up possibly around the good news of Jesus Christ. That what? We were born in our sin. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are unworthy to be in his presence. We are unworthy to be in his righteousness. That, that we in and of ourselves could do nothing to be with him once again. To have our sins forgiven. But in his great love for us, he was born of a virgin. Meaning he did not inherit that sinful nature. But he was perfect. He lived perfect. He died for our sins, that he who knew no sin became sin, meaning he bore our sins so that what? Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we could bear the righteousness of God, that he would take on our sin and in response, through grace by faith, he would lay his righteousness upon us. I pray that you had the privilege of being around that truth for a very long time. I pray that you, like myself, who thankfully have been around the teachings of Scripture and around Jesus and the teachings of Jesus for a long time, I pray that if you have had that privilege, I pray that you recognize from this text 
the temptation to allow familiarity to breed complacency in your heart with Jesus and the things of Scripture. This is not what we desire. It's not what we long for. But if we're not careful, we can just get in a routine. We can read our scriptures. We can say our prayers. We can come and worship. We can gather on a Sunday morning because it has become second nature to us. It's kind of like the moment when, um, because I've driven into Manhattan many times on Sunday and still often do, that when I drive home, I'll get on the Long Island Expressway, which is how I get back to my house in Queens. And next thing I know, I look up and I'm like four stops past my stop because I'm just doing it in second nature that I'm not even really paying attention to what's going on anymore. You ever had those moments when you're traveling or driving and you're doing the same route over and over that you like end up at your house and you don't really remember how you got there because you were just able to do it so easily that your mind was able to be somewhere else while your body was going about things. If we're not careful, that will happen when it comes to our worship of Jesus. See, don't get me wrong here. Familiarity is not a bad thing. Familiarity is a blessing. But if we're not careful, we allow familiarity to turn into complacency and contempt towards Jesus. The more the text should challenge us, Scripture should challenge us, that the more we know Jesus, the more we recognize our sinful nature, the more we recognize that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things outside of Jesus, the more we recognize how great His grace is in our lives, and therefore the more we should recognize and respond in worship and adoration of Jesus. The challenge to you is whether you are new to the teachings of Jesus or whether you have been around Jesus and have a personal relationship with him and salvation for a long time, I pray that that familiarity as you grow in relationship with Jesus would not lead you to complacency, but would continue to press you to intimate worship of Jesus. The longer I know Jesus, I want more and more of my heart to cry out and worship of Jesus. Jesus, let us be a people who recognize this truth. Let us not be a people who are just around it, the paradox of proximity. We're just around it so much that we miss the beauty and the awe and the call to live a life, to glorify God above all things and enjoy him forever in worship and adoration of him. I pray that we would recognize them. I pray that our knowledge of Jesus would lead us to be more grateful of him and what he has done. It should deepen our relationship with him and deepen our intimacy with him. We should worship Jesus more today than yesterday because we are more familiar with him today than yesterday. Let our familiarity be a blessing that leads us to worship, not complacency that leads us to unbelief and contempt of Jesus. Truth number two, not only should familiarity, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, familiarity would lead us to contempt instead of intimate worship. But second, if we're not careful, familiarity would lead us to continued complacency in the mission of God instead of passionate missional living. So let me say it again this way. Familiarity should produce passionate missional living in our heart, but it often produces complacency in our lives. Let's look at this. We're going to look at the greater context of these few chapters to get this truth. First of all, let's just look at the greater mission of Jesus. What was the mission of Jesus? To redeem mankind and glorify himself. He came primarily to redeem man from his sins and glorify himself 
but he came to restore them from all kinds of diseases and infirmities. We see that the gospel comes and does a mighty work ultimately in physical and spiritual lives as God is redeeming all things unto himself. This is the beauty of God in, in sin. We mess things up. The things are now broken, but he is coming through Jesus and through the redemption of Jesus. He is making, taking that brokenness and he's making a beautiful masterpiece, the restoration of all of creation. This is his mission. Luke chapter 11, 4 through 6, Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed of the de- and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The question, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're longing for? And that is how he responds to the disciples of John the Baptist. I want you to look at Mark chapter 6 verse 5. It says, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. When we look at this text in the context of Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 7, I want you to see what's on the each end of this story. Let's start by looking at Mark chapter 5. I'm not going to read it. We're just going to highlight and summarize the different specific stories within the text. Mark chapter 5, we see, we see Jesus heal a man with a demon, the legion demon. This might be arguably, in all the Gospels, the greatest act of power over uh, anyone who is possessed by demons. Specifically, we see this legion demon, and based off the number of pigs, we're talking thousands of potential demons. The point is, it is, a, it is a powerful spiritual darkness. Jesus shows up on the scene, and they simply bow down and beg for mercy. I want you to see the mighty work of Jesus in this moment that they recognize in the spirit realm who he is. They come down, they bow, they beg for mercy, they beg for permission, and we see Jesus do this great and powerful healing in this moment. Mighty act to show the sovereignty and the power of the fact that he is the Messiah. Mark chapter 5. The second half of Mark chapter 5, we see the healing, a raising from the dead. We see, we see, well, sick, dead is in this moment. She's on her deathbed. We see the healing. We see, we see also right in the middle of that, we see the healing of a woman who has spent all her money, all her resources, going to the best doctors and cannot find healing. And we see Jesus show up and recognize that he is the creator of all. He is the creator over everything. He is the great physician. And we see these great healings take place. Then when we get on the other side of Mark chapter 6 of our story, Jesus sends out the 12. And we see this moment where they are empowered and anointed to go and do mighty works themselves. They come back and we see at the end of Mark chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. Not a small miracle at all. The point is, well, forgive me, then then he goes and walks on water. Forgot that part. That's a pretty big deal. The point is this, right in the middle of Jesus healing the demoniac, the legion demon, healing these women of their diseases, in the middle of the disciples being sent out and the power of God beginning to multiply to see the kingdom of God advanced, in between the feeding of the 5,000, in between Jesus walking on water, there's this moment where nothing but just a few tiny healings based off the writing of how it's done. It's like 
this incredible thing happened, this incredible thing happened, eh. This incredible thing happened, this incredible thing happened. But what was the reason? Familiarity. Their unbelief. Better yet, it's not just their familiarity, but their familiarity led to unbelief. And that unbelief led to them not trusting Jesus to do mighty works in that moment. We trust the sovereignty of God. We trust that Jesus is going to have his plan fulfilled no matter what. We trust that Jesus is going to do what he wants in any moment in any place. But there's no doubt the text will emphasize even amidst that truth, there's this moment that a unbelief and familiarity in a sense, understand my words, in a sense stopped the mission of God and what Jesus was doing in that moment. They didn't trust his teaching. They didn't trust his healing power. They just completely rejected him. And what was the reason for rejection? They were so familiar with him that they didn't believe him. Not only does familiarity often lead us to unbelief, but it often leads us to complacency in the mission of God. Yeah, we, we, we've done that. We've done that missional thing, or we'll do it eventually later. I'm not talking about programs. I'm talking about individual missional living. That where might our complacency and our unbelief lead us to just be apathetic to the mission of God? I can't help but notice as we read not just this story, but we read Mark 5, 6, and 7, that it's just one incredible moment, one incredible moment, one incredible moment, one incredible moment, but right in the middle, there's just this, there's just this sadness that takes place. But there's a reason for that sadness, and it ultimately leads them to complacency. Our familiarity with Jesus, once again, we're so familiar with him that more and more we better understand our need of his grace. The fact that he has given us his grace for all eternity, that we can trust in him and recognize that our community needs this grace. The more we understand that, the more it should compel us to preach the good news of Jesus. The more it should compel us to love and to care for others. The more it should compel us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Chapter 15 of John, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Chapter 17 of John, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Church family, let us be a people who become more and more and more familiar with Jesus. This is good. I want more of Jesus. I want to know everything I can about Jesus. I want to devour the word so I can learn from him because this is his word revealed to us. It points me to Jesus. It teaches me how to love him and worship him. And I have his spirit abiding within me that is transforming me and is continuing to stir my hearts and affections towards him. I want to know Jesus more and more. But I pray that, that that familiarity would always lead to first worship and second to a life that is continuing to live consecrated unto him, that is honoring him and glorifying him through going and continuing to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I conclude simply with this challenge. If we aren't careful the blessing of familiarity will become a curse of unbelief 
and apathy. Let me say that again. If we aren't careful, the blessing of familiarity will become a curse of apathy and unbelief. What is the overall application for this morning? It's twofold. First, if you're in here today, and maybe you're the people in Nazareth, literally, in the sense that that you today, maybe at other times, but definitely today because you're in here today, you're hearing the good news of Jesus. You're hearing about his grace and his mercy, and you go, eh, I just don't know. And maybe your response is unbelief. Maybe your response is, yeah, he can't be that special. Just a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. It's just a carpenter. I pray that if that is your response right now, I pray that you would, would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, see that Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he is the Savior of the world. That he is what John the Baptist proclaims. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That if you would simply confess your sin and believe upon him, you will be saved. Meaning that as you put faith in him, God's grace is poured out upon you. That you are saved by grace through faith. This is not something you can earn. This is a gift that is given unto you. I pray that today as you hear the word of God, you would not respond in unbelief. But you would see with your eyes, empowered by the Spirit, that Jesus is Lord. I pray that you would respond in worship. The second application is for those in here who would say, no, I, I am someone who, been, who has received God's grace, that I've put my faith and trust in him, that I would, I'm a f- follower of Jesus. My encouragement to you simply today is pretty much the same as the first. Might you continue to see the goodness of Jesus and might you respond in worship? Might you worship him? Might you walk out these doors continuing to worship him with your heart and your mind and your life and your actions? And might you continue to be a church that is placed in a very unique and specific spot in the one of the, in my opinion, the greatest, most influential city in the world for a reason, to go and make Jesus famous here and around the world. Might we respond in worship and respond in missional, belief, missional living not familiarity that leads to complacency, unbelief, and apathy. Overall this morning, I just pray that you would be worshiping Jesus in response. Might your hearts cry out to him. Might your heart in adoration be stirred unto Jesus. Might you worship him. Might you worship him in faith, maybe for the first time in salvation. Might you worship him and continue as you grow in your faith as a believer in Jesus. But might we be a people who worship Jesus with our lives. Might we continue to grow and be more and more familiar with him. This is a blessing, but it comes with warnings. And Might we continue to be a people who long for the day that he calls us home that we get to see him face to face and worship him for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Jesus, even as the one preaching your word, I'm still receiving the truth of your word. 
so easy for me as a pastor, who it is my calling, my vocation, my life to study your word that I can fall into this temptation or this complacency as easy as anyone. I pray that Holy Spirit, you would protect me from complacency. You would protect me from apathy. You would protect me from unbelief. But you would continue. The more I see you, the more I study about you in your word, the more you continue to reveal yourself to me in my heart through your spirit, I pray that I and those in this room would be a people who more and more worship you, that we would worship you more today than yesterday because we are more familiar with you today than yesterday. Let us be a people who worship you with everything that we have. And Jesus, I pray last over this room, if there's anybody in here who is still in unbelief, that they have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, they have not put their faith in you, Holy Spirit, would you do your saving work in this room? Jesus, would you raise them to life just as you were raised to life for all eternity? Save souls, change lives, and may you be glorified above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church family.